Hey, before we begin, a quick reminder that today's episode is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Find us at schnickfoundation.org. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let's go, y'all. You are listening to The Foundation Podcast. Our goals are to help you build the foundation to live your best life, help solve problems, better serve humanity, and to become a beacon to help inspire change. We connect you with today's leaders, affecting positive and impactful global change. And now, here are your hosts, Todd and Stephanie Schnick. Good morning and welcome back to the Foundation Podcast. I am your host, Todd Schnick. This is likely to be, for this new podcast, the most important conversation that I'll have had. And I'm hoping that it springboards us to a series of conversations long-term about a very, very important issue. Uh, As we record this in early 2021, naturally many of you are aware of the fact that our foundation evolved a bit over the last year as a result of the pandemic. And we shifted from a couple of longer term focus projects more towards crisis relief. And one of those issues was hunger. And today's conversation is central and, and all around this issue of hunger. And, and kind of stumbling into that issue last year, I thought I was pretty savvy on kind of what it was and how we do something about it. But as I began to investigate, study, research and learn, I realized I don't know anything and I can't even get my hands around the the scope of this problem. And so today's guest is going to share some knowledge, some insight, some of the important work that she is doing in her organization, but also begin to help all of us better encapsulate and understand this issue. And then the big question is, what do we do from here? How do we advocate? How do we make a difference? So going to be what I hope is the start of many subsequent conversations on this issue. So let's welcome our guest, Jenny Eaton-Dyer. She is the co-editor of a very important book called The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. She's also the founder of the 2030 Collaborative. Jenny, my friend, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today, Todd. Yeah, the pleasure is ours. I'm uh, grateful for you to carve out some time for us. I know you're awfully busy. You got a lot of work on your plate, so I, I appreciate you taking some time out to talk to us and and kind of help guide us on how we can become partners with you on this global crisis. So there's a million ways to go on this conversation. What I want to start with, uh, we're going to talk more about your book in a bit and certainly the work of the collaborative in, in a few minutes. But I guess I'm curious, before we really kick things off, why hunger? Why is this issue now central to the work that you're doing and the focus of your life? Well, Hunger is maybe one of the most, if not the most important global health and development issue in the world today. The Copenhagen consensus um, decided this, not just me, a group of scientists a couple of years ago decided of all the issues, AIDS, TB, malaria, maternal mortality, the list goes on, vaccines even, of course, this is before COVID, they listed nutrition as the number one thing. And we'll get into why. Later, Bill Gates has also said this is the number one issue, and it should be the number one issue for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. You know, hunger for me, you know, 20 plus years ago, I started out with degrees in religion and psychology and sociology. And in the midst of all that, you know, learning from kind of the theological basis from all of this, you know, feeding the poor, feeding the hungry, it's central to almost all religions. It's one of the most moral 
things we can do. And then when given the opportunity about five or six year, years ago, of course, before, I've been working in nonprofits for almost 20 years on a variety of things, diseases to hunger and emergency relief, uh, crisis issues, just like you guys are doing with your foundation. But in doing what we're going to get into today, the work of advocacy for hunger, food security, global nutrition, and, learn, and just like you learning more about it, why it's so important in the U.S. In, and around the world, and the advances we've made scientifically and learning more about how to combat hunger really is just so compelling to get involved. Um, so I've been really excited to take a deep dive in on the front lines of advocating for these issues for the last five or six years now. Yeah, <laughs> there are literally 50 things I could say to kind of kick off the conversation. I mean, springboarding off a point you just made, we, we have all the tools, we have all the resources we need right now to solve this problem. But there are so many roadblocks that complicate the issue. And that's part of what we have to learn and understand. You know, I'm, um, as, as we record this, I'm 51 years old. So like most of people of my generation, how I first became aware of this global hunger crisis was the famous Bob Geldof Live Aid concert. I think it was 1985 that was shining a light on the pandemic or the famine, uh, excuse me, in Ethiopia, as I recall. And that was the first time little old me, and I think I was what, 15 years old, began to understand there's, there's a big thing out there that I don't understand. And, and it's, it's sad to say that all these years later, you know, we've, we've made tremendous progress in a lot of fronts. And that's one of the encouraging things, but there's still such a far way to go. So I guess what I want to do first, Jenny, is for those listening, mm-hmm who, like me, thought they had a handle on this and had a basic understanding. Can you kind of set the table where we are globally? What is the problem we're facing right now? Where are we? What needs to be done? Well, first of all, don't feel bad. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with Sir Bob Geldof myself over the years, crossing paths. And he and his cohorts didn't know what they were doing in 1995 either, raising money, which led to a couple of decades of working around debt relief for them and really getting involved in government. So you're right. It is a complex issue. None of us has our arms around it. And we don't have all the answers, but we do have a lot of answers. We're halfway there. In the last 30 years, just for listeners and you, we've been able to cut in half the number of people who die from hunger. So... We know how to combat these issues, but we do need the political will and more to go for it. So fast forwarding to today, today's a unique time. We're sitting here in January of 2021. So even when we did a book called The End of Hunger, you know, and it released in 2019, we wouldn't have guessed that five months later, we would have had a global pandemic on our hands. To put this in perspective, I mentioned we've made massive strides. So if you you think about it in a line graph, we've been able to cut in half these millions of lives, really those dying from extreme poverty and hunger, those living around $1.25 a day. However, over the last five years, because of climate change and because of conflict states and now because of COVID, there's been a J curve. So we've, we've actually gone the other direction. Last year in 2020, we really took a dive in the sense that, for instance, I did a webinar with the World Food Program who won the Nobel Peace Prize last year as well. And 
where they normally serve about 100 million people per year. And they're the largest provider of food around the world. In 2020, they served 140 million. So they were up about 40% because of COVID. So we're, we're in a, in a small period right now. We don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, COVID has really caused problems in food distribution, which has, you know, limited the access to foods and particularly cheaper foods for people in developing nations. So really famine and starvation, we're just on the brink of that in lots of low income nations. And then conflict states like Yemen are just experiencing, you know, millions of people are literally starving. So, we are in an emergency, if you will. This is an emergency relief situation. And the question is, how are we going to respond? And how is our U.S. government going to respond? How is the world going to respond to this? That's to be determined, frankly. So what exactly is hunger? Define that for the audience listening in terms of the context of your work. Because I think, let's just be honest, I suspect everyone listening to this is food secure. When they think of hunger, they think of missing a meal because a work project went over long. And so they run over to the snap machine, get out a bag of peanuts and, and crave those, those hunger pangs and, and wait till dinner. And they complain, they, oh God, I was so hungry today. They don't have any, any grasp of what we're really talking about here. And what I love most about this book, again, it was uh, one of those things that you think you understand, but you truly don't until you just really open your eyes and get into it, where I really learned one of the key things to hunger. Now, there are people who, they have economic situations where it's, they struggle to get, and they focus on getting the rent paid first and getting the light bill paid, and then they focus on, on some food. But then after a few weeks of struggle and being hungry, they, they get right around and, and get moving. What I'm talking about, though, is an issue, and that this book went really deep into this and really helped me understand potential key area for us to focus on is this issue of stunting. Oh, yeah. And, you know, this critical first thousand days. And, and I, you know, once you read about it, you're just like, how did I not even grasp this idea, this concept that this is real? And to me, that was when I really began to first understand the severity of this. And yeah, you can solve that. but what I learned through all my research on this is that when there's a hunger situation, that has tentacles and affects so many things around you and then for the next generation. So uh, someone, a child grows up stunted, and I want you to explain what that means, what that is. For most people, that affects negatively the balance of their life. Talk about what that is and, and so people can understand what we're really talking about here. Yeah, so to go back to your original question around hunger, you know, there is acute hunger and then there's chronic. So, I think what I was just talking about was more acute hunger. There have been an advance of, you know, 40 million plus people who've moved into a situation of acute hunger where they've previously had access to food resources and now they're food insecure. And the acute hunger is a limited time period versus chronic hunger, which could be experienced for years. So, a lot of children, say in Guatemala, live in a state of chronic hunger, and they don't have proper access to proteins and vitamins and micronutrients like they need, which leads to your issue of stunting. So it's interesting, a couple of years ago, I worked with one of my close friends and colleagues, Brian Poyser, 
Dr. Hoiser is at Peabody's um, College at Vanderbilt University. And we did this national polling around nutrition. And what we wanted to understand was what does the general population know about hunger? And what we found was not much about what you were talking about. Right. People literally don't know what the word stunting is. They don't know what the word wasting is. They really don't understand anemia. Like they don't understand some of the language that's used around hunger, which prevents us from really catalyzing and inspiring people to get involved with hunger because they just don't understand it. But it's real, but it's not rocket science either. It's just and like anything, it has its own language. But stunting over the last 20 to 30 years, we found to your point that if we can tackle hunger particularly in this like magic window of conception to the child's second birthday. So it's a, it's the, what we call the first thousand day period of a child's life. You can stop stunting and stop this cycle of hunger and stunting from generation to generation. So it's important that we, when we take our investments towards hunger, we really do think about maximizing that investment in that time period, giving mom prenatal vitamins, giving mom, combating anemia for the mother, making sure that the child is breastfed in the first six months, making sure the child has access to vitamin A, making sure the child has access to what we call ready-to-use food, uh, therapeutic food, foods like a peanut butter, making sure they have protein in the first couple years of their life so that we can stop stunting. So stunt, what stunting is, is what it sounds like. Physically, if the child doesn't have access to the right proteins and micronutrients, nutrients, vitamins, they will be stunted physically in their growth. And you can see this literally with growth charts with children who are stunted versus the same age. An eight-year-old might have this be the same height as, say, a four-year-old that might be stunted. They also, if you do a PET scan of their brain, will be cognitively stunted as well. And you can see this, actually. I mean, there's literally less synapses going on in their brain. And that carries through the lifespan. It is chronic. It is irreversible. Cannot change that after two years, which is why it's so important to get to that mom and baby in that first thousand days window. And what we see then is let's say the child is cognitively, cognitively and physically stunted. If you look at it longitudinally, they don't finish as much education. They don't have better jobs. They're not able to care for the next generation when they have kids. They have chronic illnesses that others do not have suffer from. And they just lead a stunted lifespan, if you will. And then that cycle continues. So again, it's important to get back to that first thousand day window. Well, and I think the book, there's even, you make even some attempt to attach an economic impact to that yeah. in terms of, uh, think of a, a, your typical African nation. We all have stereotype that we think about when we think about these, the, as you call them, conflict states and other nations in Africa struggling with, with hunger issues. But if stunting wasn't, if we could solve for that, if we could figure out how to eliminate that, the economic power that comes behind that and then how these people get the right education and then become entrepreneurial and then innovative and then begin to solve for these problems on their own. And, and, and we're just, we're losing all that from, from this. So, all right, well, I wanted to thank you for going through this idea of stunting because I wanted to put a real honest to goodness, severe problem as a result of, of hunger. Cause to me, when I first began to learn about that, I thought, all right, here's where we can perhaps very obvious 
thing we can try to solve and we can focus on. And, and of course, the other thing I'm always trying to figure out, and I'll go more into this later, is how do I tell the story? How do I talk to people? And because and, I tried to raise money around hunger in the last uh, year and it was hard. And so I'm, I'm trying also to figure out how do I put a human spin on this and, and begin for people to really, truly understand. All right. So better idea what hunger is about and, and one example of how this really impacts humans. So this book, we've mentioned it several times, The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World. Why did you put this together? What was the mission? What was the purpose of this? What was the call to arms? Yeah, so I worked with um, a good friend, Kathleen Falsani, who's award-winning religion journalist who helped put this book together with me. And it is a collection of writers, of contributors. And these writers, I mean, we have Chef Rick Bayless to Senator Bill Frist. We have journalist Roger Thoreau, all the way to Brad and Kim Paisley, the country music artist. And we wanted it that way from politicians. Jeff Sachs writes our second article. He's an economist at Columbia. A mix of experts, but also people who are advocates of this and or have experience around the food industry, food security, these kinds of issues from all different perspectives to look at hunger because it is kind of a prism. There's so many different facets to the problem, that it's important to look at it from all sides, the political angle, the religious angle, the domestic angle, the international one, to get a better grasp on the scope of it. And of course, with all these folks, we hope that people would be interested to read what, you know, Amy Grant has to say about it as much as they want to see um, Ambassador Tony Hall has to say about it. He's an expert and leads the Alliance to End Hunger. So um, there's a little bit for everybody in this. Book. Yeah, no, it's a. I found the book to be 50% inspiring and bringing me hope, and 50% really depressing me. Oh, and yes. I think that was one of the goals was to educate, and make you aware of the true scope of this problem. And the the diverse collection of contributors was actually really great. Uh, Tony Hall, I mean, I, his piece kind of anchored me in figuring out. All right, here's where you begin. Right. Uh, and it was, it was the idea behind uh, the Mother Teresa, you know, you got to do what's in front of you. Uh, right. And, right. And, and we'll talk more about that in a second. What I really loved about Kim and Brad Paisley's uh, piece was a thing I had never thought about before. We have to be cognizant of the dignity of the people that we're trying to help here. Right. And we all have a stereotype in our mind of what your typical hunger hungry families in your community, right? I mean, everyone's immediately thinking of the same thing that I probably initially thought of when I, you know, think about what that looks like. But there's a lot of people just like you and me that are struggling through hunger issues right now. And and I think the story was, this person was collecting, this may not have been Kim Paisley's another story, but someone was collecting clothes for their elementary school and someone brought really high quality items. And the collector was like, well, wow. Why are we doing these really expensive gloves? Why? Well, I, I don't want to give cheap stuff to my kids if they need clothes. So I want to bring the kind of stuff I would give to my kids. And then springboarding to the Paisleys and how they named their project in Nashville, The Store, because they didn't want there to be some negative connotation to saying we're going to a, a place where that serves desperate people like us. We're just, we can now say we're going to The Store. It's all part of the dignity of this. And, and I hadn't thought about that before. So the, the collection, and then, of course, the other awesome thing about the book was how many contributors had actually been on the front lines and the stories they were telling about 
these traumatic and dramatic stories and, and the emotions that they tug. I mean, so that was powerful as well. So it was a great collection. The goal of this, I'm suspecting, was one, to educate, but also to teach us of the path forward and kind of give us some tools and some ideas on how to begin to tackle this. What would you say are, are kind of the, uh, again, this is a very broad question, but kind of overline of where, where do we, how do we begin to tackle this? Uh, how, how do we begin to advocate? Right. Yeah, it is a little, it's a little bit more complicated. I've worked on a variety of issues. I've worked in family planning, the other issues that are actually, you know, clean water is clean water, but this is, there are a variety of ways people can get involved with this in a different and more, more diverse ways. The one um, article onward to 2030 about Will Moore was um, an interesting piece that we included. And I loved his piece because not only to your point, does it give you the facts and educate you on where the status of hunger and food security in the world today or food insecurity, but it also shines a light on the path forward. You know, we've come halfway to ending hunger and we know how to do it, but here's what we have to do more. And what we do need is the political will. So one thing that most Americans, well, first of all, two things. The media doesn't cover this. The media doesn't tell the good news of what our generation has done since 1990, what the U.S. has done. We've done it in collaboration with other nations, both developing and developed. However, we have led in the amount of funding that we have done and developed, um, which is just a real tribute to, um, to our work around the world and to our parents. It is epic to be able to say we cut extreme poverty in half during our lifetime because I'm not too much younger than you are. And so that's good news, number one. We've cut in half the number of deaths from HIV and AIDS. We've cut in half the number of deaths from malaria and TB. We've cut in half the number of deaths from child survival issues. In 1990, there's about 12 million kids that died every year. Today, it's less than 6 million. I mean, this is massive stride. So the list goes on, maternal mortality and whatnot. So that's number one good news that Americans don't know. Number two, they also don't know that when asked, when polled, and the Kaiser Family Foundation does this annually, how much money does our U.S. budget donate to foreigners? Do you know this, Todd? I don't. (laughs) I know it's a lot, but I know it's not enough. It is probably less than you think. So most Americans, over half of Americans, think it's about 28% of the U.S. budget. And they, most will say, you know what, we should tie. We should give 10%. The reality is less than 1% of our U.S. budget goes to foreign assistance. It's like less than a quarter of 1% goes to all of our global health, the global total global health account. That's everything we give for PEPFAR and AIDS, the Global Fund, HTB, malaria, other malaria, other diseases all of our vaccine money, all of that together is, it's just a fraction of our entire budget. It is not in the ballpark of 10%. In fact, percentage-wise, we give, we're, we give less than a lot of na- nations. We give more money total, less money percentage-wise. So we could stand to do a little bit more, frankly. In terms of hunger, the funding is spread out a little bit. But it's really 1% of 1% goes to international hunger worldwide. So again, we're talking about a fraction. Last year, we gave about $150 million towards um, 
hunger. And with that, the numbers came back for 2017. That's the latest numbers I actually even have. 22 million children's lives were saved with that funding. So every dollar counts. Every dollar we put towards hunger, $1 is a, has a $16 return in country. So, I mean, we could go into the economic... I mean, we can go into so many streams of this, but we could go down that road and talk about it. But again, that's the other thing Americans don't know, that like less than a, a penny to a penny to the dollar, that's what we're spending on hunger. And we could stand to spend a little more, or even if we just kept it. But again, in the time of COVID, so far, no money has gone towards hunger relief or food issues um, with these COVID packages, but it would be great to see see some of that happen. So. Yeah, you're right. There's a, a whole podcast that we could have just on the issue of what can the U.S. government do, because you could make the case very strongly that more money, you sp- the money you spend there is an investment in peace. And right. it's an investment in, uh, of course, global health, but uh, in terms of strengthening the, the world economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's so many arguments to be made. Right. We could take hours to really dive into that. And, and maybe at some point we'll, we'll do that. I think this is a good point to kind of bring in some of the work of your project. Uh, someone's asking, well, what is, what is Jenny doing about all this? Uh, well, you founded the 2030 Collaborative, which is an organization that, that focuses on this issue and, and some others. And the thing is, the other thing I, I realized is how, how tied into other global issues this is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hear a lot about climate change. Well, this is very much a part of the discussion around hunger. And, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. But the 2030 Collaborative also does things in around poverty and health and, and education, clean water. I'm particularly involved in water. I have had a client, believe mm-hmm. it or not, who is a trade magazine in the water, wastewater space. And so I'm, I have been diving into water issues for a long, long time. Uh, and so I'm cognizant of how clean water, how important that is to this whole conversation. And, and you know, Americans, we complain about a $50 water bill. When if we were truly aware of the scope of the desire for clean water around most of the world, we would pay, we would be happy to spend $1,500 a month on water if we truly understood what some people go through to get a bucket of unclean water every day. Sanitation, uh, and then we talked a little bit about this conflict state, so how this infects peace and justice. So the 2030 Collaborative kind of is focused on a lot of these issues. Can you kind of explain where that came from and the genesis of this idea of what 2030 means and where that is and and all of that? Sure. So uh, the 2030 Collaborative really is a a firm that is dealing with largely, but not exclusively with what's called the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And this is the work that I've done over the last 20 years from working with Bono launching his data to um, what is now the One Campaign. And then I worked with um, Senator Bill Frist, who's really the architect of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief under the Bush administration. Which is a great Um, success story. It it is. It may be President Bush's legacy, if you ask me. Millions of lives, I think it's in the ballpark of 20 plus million of lives have been saved because of that um, piece of legislation and worked for him for 10 years. So poverty is systemic. There's no way around. There's no silver bullet to addressing extreme poverty. Hunger is one of those issues. Clean water is another one of those issues. And of course, you know, if you don't have access to foods, you can't take your antiretroviral medications if you're a victim of HIV and AIDS. 
if you are a child and you don't have access to clean water, you can die. You know, one of the leading cause of deaths is like diarrhea for children. They need access to oral rehydration therapies because they're not getting clean water. It's bacteria in the water. So all of these issues are linked together. And so the UN created goals years ago and they've been passed down and passed down. We're continuing to work on them, but they're the sustainable development goals. There's 17 of them. Ending hunger is the second of the goals. The first one is no more poverty and, and you know, clean water and sanitation and uh, gender equality and issues around global diseases are part of all of these things, education and the list goes on and climate change. So you just can't work on one issue without working on a variety. Right. Another huge issue we work on is with the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. So we work with this group called Friends of the Global Fight to promote awareness and education um, and do the work of advocacy around AIDS, TB, and malaria and how those diseases are impacting low-income nations. And then also now in a time of COVID, how is COVID impacting the TB, TB patients? You know, because they're both attacking the pulmonary system. You know, how is COVID intersecting with malaria? You know, because the symptoms are actually somewhat similar. So now we're looking at these kinds of um, conflation of issues with COVID in all of these areas. So that's a snapshot of kind of a more holistic view of why we work on a variety of issues and how we do. And what's the significance of, of 2030? So the 2030 is the goal right now for the UN to accomplish each of these sustainable development goals. Um, there's no guarantee we will do that, especially with the rise of global pandemics, but some countries advance faster than others. So some countries may achieve these goals and others will lag behind. But for the goal is for everyone, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. The goal is for everyone to be on this train. That's never the reality, but we at least have goals and we're working towards them and the world has agreed to work towards these goals. All right. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate the important work that you and uh, the collaborative are doing on that. And, and uh, you and I will have some conversations about how our foundation can align with you and be a helpful uh, partner. In the interest of keeping this conversation under 10 hours, I, I'm going to limit the balance of our conversation to three more discussion topics. One of the things I, I thought of this book when I was reading it was it was almost a call to arms to us Christians on kind of smacking us on the forehead and reminding us of what our true purpose is and what, what we should be doing. Can you talk about the role of us Christians and, and faith-based people and what the role of religion is in this issue and, and what we should be focused on? And, and that also speaks towards another conversation we'll have in a minute is towards our advocacy. That can be a very powerful block of loud voices that can, can hopefully move some mountains here. But talk about the role of, of faith here. Right. So the role of faith is paramount. And this may go back to both my, really my academic backgrounds, but also in 2001, 2002, when I crossed paths with Bono, he was one of the first really secular, although he is a Christian himself, guy that was like, we have to get the church on board if we're going to move America in order to move President Bush and the Bush administration. The church has to be at the helm of this. And at the time, I don't know if you remember, if your your listeners may be too young to remember, but because of the culture wars around AIDS, it was a highly stigmatized issue. 
So it took a lot of work to destigmatize the disease and to talk about it openly and get people on board to move. You know, he led the way in making it a moral issue. I mean, so did many others, but he was one of the key folks that said, okay, I'm not of the church, I'm not a pastor, but you people need to get on board this thing because this is what your scripture is telling you to do. So I had the privilege of kind of being on the front lines of that and watching that and helping them develop pastors and such around that. These global health issues are moral issues. And you and I just talked about they are economic issues. They are actually their national security issues. We talk about it in that. They are public health issues. If you want to go down that route, there's a variety of ways and a variety of reasons people need to get involved. It doesn't have to be faith or moral, but it is maybe a key reason. And it's certainly a key reason for people of faith, Christian and others. All religions are tell us to help the poor, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. I mean, it's, it is what we're called to do. So to that end, we believe that it is the role of the church to kind of rise up and address these issues. Yeah, well, and that was important for me. I'm a good Christian, and you know, I mean, you already know that I've done my duty and that I founded a foundation and we've raised money. Yeah, that's great. Pat myself on the back. It's it's much more than that, and and, and it's it's a leadership role that that the church can play. And and as we'll talk about in a minute, the potent force in advocacy and getting a word out and educational through sermons. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of power that can come. And I think the book demonstrates uh, some examples of, of some successes that have had a result of that kind of uh, uh, of that group group think and that, that movement. But yeah, uh, Jesus taught us to do this, and and there's plenty of examples of of how he helped the poor and and fed the hungry, and and it's a, a calling to us to be to do the same. So I do appreciate the kind of the smack on the forehead, remind me of our mission and purpose there. So. Uh, a lot of discussion in the book about uh, the role of religion and faith in this. And so I, I, I'm, I'm scratching the surface with this one question in this conversation, but but an important part of this thing. And and you alluded to uh, Bono and, and kind of how he uh, stated the importance of, of their role. And so lots to think about there. The second final subject I want to talk about is, that we, you mentioned it several times, is his political will. Mm-hmm. And like everything else with this issue, there's so many different directions we could take it. One is, one approach I want you to talk about is, is in these conflict states. As we talked at the very top of the show, we, we know what to do. We know we have the tools, we have the knowledge to solve these problems. But in a lot of these conflict states, they're actively working against us and trying to feed the hungry and clothe the poor and, and all that. And so the question is, well, how the heck do we do this then if we're trying to duck bullets? But then, you know, then it comes closer to home for me. I mean, I can tell you, not a day goes by where I'm not paying attention to the news. And I say to myself, why are you focused on that when there are hundreds of thousands of hungry people within my line of sight? Why are you not solving this obvious problem that's right under our noses in my very own neighborhood and community and you're focused on politics and other naming a bridge and doing all that kind of stuff when you should be focused on solving this very real thing. I think there's a lot of people that say, I don't want to get involved in this because there's just no way to overcome this lack of political will. Talk, just talk about how do, how do we deal with this? Yeah, I mean, it reminded me of Tony Hall's, uh, you know, meeting with Mother Teresa and just yeah. do it, do it in front of me because that's all you can do. 
today and do what's in front of you tomorrow. And, you know, that's all we, any of us can do. So in terms of the political will, first of all, let's talk about domestic hunger. You're right. Especially during this time of COVID, I just read some stats that um, typically there's about 35 million Americans who rely on food banks. Now there's 50% more, about 17 million more last year that needed access to food. So hunger is, you know, it's a very real situation in the United States. And it's even more real now because of COVID, the rise of COVID. So it is at our front door, back door, uh, within our line of sight in our hometowns. And so supporting those local food banks, those local churches, the Meals on Wheels, the schools program, that is all wonderful things and wonderful ways people can contribute, get involved and do philanthropic work and volunteer work. In terms of the politics of it, I don't like the word politics so much as policy because it doesn't matter who's in office, Republican or Democrat, in the White It doesn't matter who's in the White House. We're still fighting for the same thing. We still have the responsibility to advocate for the world's poorest on these issues. And we still need to advocate for the great domestic programs like SNAP and WIC and others um, for people here in the U.S. as well. I happen to work on the international side. I don't work on domestic nearly as much. I have wonderful colleagues who do. do. Jeremy Everett does a great national program out of Baylor University, um, the Hunger and Poverty Collaborative. I just tend to focus on global issues. Good news is global health tends to be bipartisan. We have champions on the left and we have champions on the right. People want to support this. Your member of Congress wants to do it because it's feel good thing. It, it is a great branding opportunity for the U.S. to come into a country and provide funding for AIDS, to provide funding for food resources. It makes us the good guy. So these are things your member of Congress really wants to and needs permission, typically if they're a Republican, to do. What we talk about when we need the political will is, is that we need to better support our members of Congress so that they can vote for and get behind that tiny fraction of 1% of funding every year for the appropriations budget. So that's kind of what we're talking about. It's a policy. It's, it's more like we want the, poli- the will to affect policy. Less, it's not a Republican issue and it's not a Democratic issue. It's an issue that is about the global health and development of the world's most vulnerable populations and how can they play a role in that. The scope of the problem, what would you say, Jenny? What's the number of people globally who are food insecure? Is it roughly a billion people? Yeah, it is roughly a billion people right now. Yeah. So the reason I asked that question is this, is I think when someone hears that, Mm -hmm. they can't get their head around that. That number is so big that they say it's, I can't even grasp. It's like one of the issues that's, that drives me crazy talking about politics is the size of our national debt. And I think (laughs) somewhere right now, our national debt is somewhere between 25 and $30 trillion. The human being can't even grasp $1 trillion and what that really means and what that, they can't even understand. It's such a big number. They can't understand it to even begin to get angry about it. it, it's, it's, It's so big that they just can't focus on it. The same thing with a billion food insecure people. It's, the problem seems too big. Me alone, can't, I can't do anything about it. And I want to shatter that 
mentality because we have to, you know, it's the Mother Teresa thing. You can focus on what's right in front of you because if we all do that, all of a sudden, then we start moving, moving things. But talk about the, I mean, so it's advocating. So calling your representatives in government, and I'm not talking about your congressman, yes, but your state and your local. Uh, I'm, I live in downtown Chicago. A lot of food issues, a lot of food insecure here. And so I get angry every day about our board of aldermen seem to be focused on all the wrong things. And so, but we got to advocate to these guys. We got to be loud voices because that does matter. That does have an impact. That does work. It is an issue that it's easy to get behind. Certainly if you think you have the political support behind you. But I would share when this past year when we kind of shifted our focus to some more crisis relief with our foundation, I did some Googling, found some mind-blowing stats about the, the breadth of the problem of hunger and shared them. And it just didn't click with people because, they, it, again, it's just such a big problem. It's so overwhelming. They just they can't get their hands around it. And so it was hard to take action. So I'm desperately trying to figure out how do I bring this down to a level where people can begin to really understand it. And even if they only focus on their neighborhood and their community. Because every community in the world has a hunger issue and there's something to be done even very, very locally. Because the other thing, and I want you to comment on, and I'll shut up in a minute so you can actually talk, is this idea of, yeah, our little foundation raised about 14 grand last year for hunger issues. Now, that's a drop in the ocean concerning the kind of level of the things that you're focused on. We're pretty proud of that. But you have to think about, it's not just putting, raising money is great. I don't think people realize the logistical engineering that has to go into it, what happens once you get those dollars and they're actually delivering food to people, especially when you're trying to do it in conflict states. <laughs> I mean, getting the food to people and solving this problem is, a, is an enormously complicated thing. Just donating money is a great thing, but you have to be understanding of, of the wider scope of what it actually entails. Or I'll shut up so you can kind of comment on some of this. I'm, I'm just trying to help people understand that they can actually have an impact here. They can have an impact. And I, I think what folks are overwhelmed by, as you were mentioning earlier, with the numbers. And, and again, we cut in half those numbers. So where there's a billion today, there was close to two billion not too long ago. So we're moving in the right direction. We do know how to do this. A lot of people want to just give money to their church to solve hunger, or just give money to their local, or just give money to, say, Save the Children, or Action Against Hunger, or International Rescue uh, Committee, or, you know, some of these are great places. And yes, you should give money. But governmental infrastructure, there's no accounting for it. I mean, especially, some, uh, you know, like the World Food Program. I mean, it's a multilateral um, organization where a number of countries are pouring into it. No other group can feed 140 million people and get that food into Yemen. You know, these are special skills. And lacking food brings conflict, and conflict brings food insecurity. It's a cyclical problem. So you have to intervene to stop the starvation to bring peace. So peace is one, P-E-A-C-E, peace is one big factor for all of this. Famine is a man-made problem. So diplomacy by the U.S. government and others is just critical in taking a role in bringing peace because where there's peace, you can end famine and you can bring in food resources. So that's a whole complicated 
cyclical, chaotic issue between hunger and conflict and peace that most organizations don't have the capacity to move into. So that's why it's it's important to do philanthropy. It's important to do volunteering and it's important to do all the work, you know, with your church or house of faith. But it's also important to advocate because we need to move the huge infrastructures and support those multilateral and bilateral, which is the US doing this work in hunger through USAID and other platforms from a governmental because that's also that's a that is affecting the lives of millions and millions of people worldwide. So it's a both ends, you know, situation. So we have to get more vocal with our elected leaders at all levels, in my opinion. You know, there are those that say, well, why does, why does the United States have to bear the burden of all this, all this aid? And, and one, we're not bearing the burdens alone. There are other countries involved. We have a capability, but we do it because we can, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, there are nations in the world that don't do that because they don't want to, because they like this idea of maintaining geopolitical instability. But there are nations that, that can do it, and it's the right thing to do. And, you know, we probably, I guess you could say, we should be proud of what we do contribute, but we also know we can do so much more. So we need to be advocating. Uh, so those listening need to get much more vocal with our political leaders and communicate your desire for them to support these kind of programs, both locally and uh, internationally. Donating to that local food bank, according to you, is important, right? So there are people that are like, oh, I'm just nervous about, I just don't trust the food that's actually going to get to the right people. But that work is important, right? And that does have an impact. Absolutely, yes. I mean, that might be the number one thing I would recommend in terms of a local contribution. Okay. Any other thoughts on things we can do? I mean, don't be overwhelmed by the state of this problem. Uh, uh, the problem is, is so entrenched in virtually every element of human existence right now that you there's a role that you can play. And even if you don't have the, the financial resources to be a player here, there's a lot you can do in terms of helping this issue. And even if, I think even the most important thing most people can do right now is become more aware of this and educate themselves. I mean, we haven't even talked Jenny, about sustainable food and, and, right. and nutritional eating. I mean, uh, that's a whole, that's a subject for an entire podcast of, of how we need to be teaching people the importance of, you mentioned Rick Bayless earlier and, and uh, uh, reading uh, his section of the book uh, reminded me and my wife and I ordered food from one of his restaurants this weekend. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but importance of supporting local food development and, and farming. And I mean, uh, but educating yourself on that, on nutritional eating, on sustainable, um, and all these issues we talked about uh, on poverty and education, clean water, sanitation is all interact, all interrelated and, and it all has an impact on, and there's a reason why this, uh, uh, this uh, sustainable development goals of the UN there's a reason there's 17 issues because they all kind of tie together. And focusing on clean water is an important element of, of helping all of those issues rise. You just mentioned rising tide lifts all boats. So advocating to your elected officials, donating to that local food bank, and educating yourself are probably the three things we can do right now that can have a tremendous impact on this issue. Yes? Yes. And I would say you could do all three online. You can donate online to your local food bank. You can Google or go to Senate.gov or House.gov, put in your zip code, and your representative or your senators will pop up and you can email them right there. 
it's a two minute intervention that can touch the lives of millions of people locally, globally. What I also learned through all this was even a, a small contribution is important because these organizations that are doing this work have learned how to really maximize these contributions. And so you may give $5, but that actually represents a spending power much greater than that and has, because of bulk buying and all these different kinds of strategies, even a low dollar contribution can have a big impact. Yes, exactly. So $5 is huge. And learning about this is a huge thing. I mean, the book obviously tells a lot about it. You can go to the 2030collaborative.com and we've got some pamphlets and information about these issues, uh, signing letters for these issues. A number of groups do that. We do that um, to your elected officials. There's a number of ways, like you said, to get involved monetarily or not monetarily. And you're, you can have incredible impact on these issues. All right. Well, good. Well, then that's uh, probably a good wrap for today. Uh, the goal was to give everyone listening sort of an overview of the scope of this thing, but also to provide some hope uh, that we we can do some good and, and even small actions can can have big results. Uh, you and I will chat offline and figure out how do we go from here and, and what, what areas do we really go deep on and further understanding of the scope of this thing. So I look forward to exploring those possibilities. One last time, uh, Jenny, before we let you go, uh, where can people get a copy of this book? And again, where do they go to learn more about the work of the 2030 Collaborative? Sure, you can go to www.2030collaborative.com. And the book is available through amazon.com or intervarsitypress.com. And the book does uh, have uh, a significant list of organizations that you can financially support frankly, just support, and also uh, even has some some sample letters that you can send to your elected officials. So there's some tools there as well. I imagine uh, there's ample resources on the 2030 Collaborative to help you do some of this thing. But those three things, folks, uh, if you could uh, just educate yourself on this issue, uh, start advocating, getting that word out to these elected leaders and beg them to start focusing on this problem and investing more. And then do your share uh, locally. Uh, if you start locally, it, would, it has a, a huge impact. Jenny, one last time, where can people go to connect with you and learn more about your work? You can reach me at Jenny at the2030collaborative.com or 2030collaborative.com. Jenny Eaton-Dyer, co-editor of The End of Hunger, Renewed Hope for Feeding the World, and the founder of the 2030 Collaborative. Jenny, once again, uh, really grateful for your time. I appreciate uh, you giving us an hour to kind of educate us on the, the breadth and, and depth of these issues and uh, uh, look forward to uh, where our collaboration goes from here. Oh, gosh, thank you so much for talking about these issues and giving voice to these issues. I, I can't thank you enough for that as well. I appreciate that. All right, Jenny Eaton-Dyer, Todd Schnitz, all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time on The Foundation Podcast. The Foundation Podcast is produced by Intrepid Media and is made possible in part by the Todd and Stephanie Schnick Foundation. Learn more by visiting schnickfoundation.org. And thank you for listening. Now, get out there and do some good and we'll see you next time. 